This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Dr. Seuss is one of the most beloved children's authors of all time, but his place in the childhood canon is being challenged. We'll explain why. Plus, Chicago Public Schools has a big problem with gangs, but our teachers say what they did to try to make the situation better may not work. And paid sabbaticals, they're common for college professors. Should K-12 teachers also get them? You may be surprised what our teachers think. Those topics plus kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them here in Kansas City. Jamie Myers, what do you teach? I teach eighth grade ELA, and it's right now called Applications. But a writing class. Yes, it's a writing class. Yeah. Uh, Bakari Uku used to be in the classroom, but now what do you do in education? Middle school vice principal. Both of you are in Kansas City. And joining us from Chicago is Laura Ferdinand back again. Laura, what do you teach or what do you do in education? Um, I am the curriculum coordinator at my elementary school, and we're a K-8 through school. But right now I'm actually spending a lot of time in one of the third-grade classrooms because we had a teacher unexpectedly have to leave, so I'm kind of filling in until we find somebody. So you are back in the classroom. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> uh, so Laura is in Chicago. Jamie and Bakari, like I said, are, are in uh, the Kansas City area. Before we get started, just a reminder, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, the Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. The Friday Cheat Sheet gives you a preview of what we'll be talking about on the next episode and also is a review of some of the interesting education stories that caught our eye during the week. It's your teacherly take on the world. In your inbox, sign up for the Friday Cheat Sheet at NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. How far should educators go in monitoring their students' social media posts outside of school? That question was brought to the fore again recently by a joint investigation published by ProPublica and Chicago public radio station WBEZ. Reporters Aaron Leibovitz and Sarah Karp found that under Chicago Public Schools' expanded program monitoring student social media, some 700 students over the past four years have been talked to, interviewed, or otherwise intervened with by either school or police officials based on social media posts that suggested possible gang activity or gang connections at the very least. Many times these interventions were prompted by social media images of students flashing gang signs or in some cases posing with guns. In a few extreme cases, the posts involved specific violent threats against other students or a particular school. District officials have defended their expanded monitoring of social media, saying it's an effective way to combat the pernicious effects gangs are having on Chicago's schools, but many parents and community members are upset. They feel the district has not been transparent about the social media monitoring and also that it could potentially invade student privacy and unnecessarily expand the role of Chicago police in city schools. Well, we do have a teacher who teaches in Chicago on the show today, Laura, so I would like to go to you first. Um, This program, which I should mention was funded by a federal grant that was begun in 2014, Um, According to ProPublica's reporting, it involves 24 schools, most of them in the city's south and west side. Again, 
Um, most of these schools with either majority black or majority Hispanic student populations. For those of us who don't live and work in Chicago, can you give us some context? I mean, how big a problem is, or would you say, is, is gang activity in your school or in the city schools overall? Um, it's quite a problem, especially like the article said, on the south and west sides because of generation after generation of disinvestment in the communities, there are really strong gang ties in a lot of neighborhoods. And, you know, the neighborhood that I work in, there are different gangs on different blocks. So we're actually in a unique situation where there's three elementary schools that face each other all on one street. And the gangs are rival gangs from one school to the next. So um, even though there are different learning opportunities at one of the schools across the street, that's a fine and performing arts elementary school um, where a lot of students would be able to not test into but apply and become a part of the program there, their families won't let them go because they can't cross the street. Oh, well, just to give a little bit more detail to the program that uh, Chicago Public Schools has been running the past four years. They did get federal grant money, $2.2 million worth, that the district has used to fund two full-time intelligence analysts who work for the district, whose job it is to monitor potential uh, gang activity on student social media. Up until last year as well, the program also involved software that allowed these analysts to do Um, I think pretty broad-ranging keyword searches to quickly analyze student social media conversations um, that might indicate gang connections. Uh, The district discontinued the use of that software last year, and we should also say this federal grant has run out, so there are indications the district may be scaling the program back. Um, But district officials talking to ProPublica and WBEZ have also vowed to carry on doing a measure of social media monitoring because they do feel the program's been effective. I I can get into that a little bit later. But I guess, Laura, last question to you before I open it up to all three of you. Um, As a teacher in Chicago, you've discussed um, kind of the challenges that that, um, gangs can pose within schools. Do you feel all of that, um, the the monitoring, the hiring of the intelligence analysts, the use of the software, is that justified uh, by the fears of what gangs can or or are doing um, in Chicago schools? I guess from my perspective, I don't think it really targets the actual issue. At least from what I understand, this is a little bit similar to the gang database that um, Chicago Police Department has been using, and it's been really controversial over the last, you know, several years. It's one thing to identify kids who you think are at risk for becoming involved in gang activity, but if you just walked into any school, you could talk to the teachers, you could talk to the students, and it wouldn't be hard (laughs) for people to identify, oh, yeah, that kid um, is doing such and such on social media or off of social media. And I think the bigger the bigger issue, the the problem that we actually need to tackle is how do we provide opportunities for these kids that helps them actually choose a different path um, and that gives them some sense of investment um, because all the kids that I know that have gotten involved in the gang in the neighborhood I work in, it's not because they want to, it's because they feel like it's inevitable or they feel like it's the only option that they have because we're not offering as a school district, but as a city in general, we're not offering other options for these students and for these families. It's kind of how they feel 
you know, they just feel like that's what they have to resort to. Uh, broadening the conversation a bit, you know, in this ProPublica WBEZ report, some principals in Chicago say that up to 90 percent of fights at their schools are instigated by something that is said online. There's maybe no way to truly fact check that, but that's what the principals are saying. But point being, uh, social media is a major source of volatility and even violence in the real world in school, I guess. So for all of you now, bringing in Bakari and Jamie, who do not teach in Chicago, so maybe you don't Maybe you do, but maybe you don't work with some of the specific problems that Laura's bringing up. Um, I think you can still relate to the idea of social media instigating problems in the real, real world that you have to deal with. And I wonder um, how you've experienced that. Um, unfortunately, there have been incidences where parents have also gotten involved with the violence. Um, we've had parents like waiting at a bus stop for a certain young lady to try to threaten them to stop making comments about, you know, her daughter on, on social media. On social media. Yeah. Um, and then we've also had incidences of self-harm, like threats, so that we've had to, you know, act on that. If we see that, you know, send police officers over to the home, have them, you know, watched, stuff like that. Most most of the, the violence and the danger that I see on social media um, goes one way or the other, either to the extreme where the parents get involved or a student talking about... Um, self-harm. Yeah, I mean, so I guess for all of you, I mean, I was going to ask, have you ever been in a position where you saw or were alerted to something a student had said on social media that led to an intervention? I mean, the main thrust of the um, the Chicago program that was the starter to this conversation was the idea that by monitoring what was said online, you could intervene before something happened or you could kind of cut it off and maybe talk to the kid. And um, it might not be something that was gang related, but I mean, is, have there been instances where you were able to maybe intervene before it got worse? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we don't have a system to monitor our students' social media, but students take screenshots and and um, and report, or, and sometimes they self-report. So I definitely appreciate that. I think it goes back to having relationships, though, and I think that's ultimately what it, it requires. I think that, to Lauren's point, that just um, scouring students' Facebook pages, our social media pages, is really reactive and not proactive. And so I think that if students have those relationships um, with the adults in their building, um, they're able to better confide in them and, like, say, here's what's going on. And so I think that is where I found the most success is that while students, some students are posting on social media, um, I often find out about those posts because other students are reporting that to me because of my relationship with them. That allows us to then engage in a, a conversation and intervene um, so that it doesn't escalate to violent acts. I mean, as an administrator, as part of your job... Uh uh, keeping abreast of what students are saying on social media? Like, do you do you spend a certain amount of time every day like looking at social media posts? Or like you said, is it mainly just word of mouth students pass it along to you? It's it's generally word of mouth. I don't follow any of my kids on social media. Like, I mean, they follow like our school page and the district's page and that sort of thing. So we, we stay abreast of that end, um, but I don't actively have like time built into my schedule to review, <laughs> right. review kids' social media <laughs> yeah. posts. Yeah. Uh, you know, have anything else better to do? Okay. <laughs> um, I, I wonder for all of you, um, maybe we can start back with Laura. I mean, how does just reading about this Chicago program, the, the, the kind of the broad ranging scope of it, 24 schools, um, thousands of students kind of being looked at, um, hundreds of students being in, intervened with. Um, how do you feel about it? Are you do you think it's necessary? Are you worried by it as a teacher? I think, um, you know, going back to this project specifically, um, 
again, it just feels like a drop in the bucket. Um, 24 schools is significant. Thousands of students is significant. But we have 630 schools. We have, you know, um, tens of thousands of students who we work with. And um, it's just again, identifying the student doesn't do anything to actually solve any of these issues that are causing the student to make these decisions. So again, I think that what Bakari was saying is so accurate. It's the relationships with the students. It's coming up with alternatives. It's thinking about how do we actually um, teach kids, if we're just thinking about social media in general, how do we teach kids what appropriate decisions they can make about the social media that they use um, so that they're not putting themselves in danger or putting other children um, in danger as well. Because I think that I've experienced um, with a specific story of a student, you know, again, it was a middle school student who started passing around inappropriate pictures of another student. And the police got involved. There's now a criminal record. It's staying with this kid, you know, forever. And a lot of that felt like this was probably 2010 when this happened. A lot of it felt like the adults in that kid's life were not doing enough to actually help um, form, you know, like help form those opinions and help form that behavior. And I think reading the comments of some of the critics of this Chicago program, one of the one of their main points of contention is that um, this does increase the presence and scope mm-hmm. of the work of police within schools. Yeah. So you have yeah. uh, not only teachers or administrators, but also in a lot of cases, police officers actually interviewing yeah. students based on what they saw on social media. And I, and I just wonder... What kind of position does that put a student in if you are being called into the principal's office and then there's not only your principal but then also a police officer there to talk to you about something that was seen on social media? I wonder how a student reacts to that. Well, I think in addition to that, like the schools that they were targeting are also like predominantly black and brown schools. And so then Mm -hmm. that's increasing the touch points of black and brown children with very tense um, interactions with police officers. And so I think that that Mm -hmm. we have to take that into consideration as well. because we, what we should be doing is providing more positive interactions with uh, police officers and cultivating that relationship versus uh, making it more adversarial That to the point where, in, from the article, it sounded like a lot of the students and families didn't even know that this program existed when they went to those schools. And so it's kind of like a gotcha um, versus like a we're here to help. Yeah, and I think that um, we've got cops in our school multiple times a week for, you know, and we're not even a school that's involved in this study. So um, those touch points, I think, are really critical. And thinking about, again, thinking about what good is it really doing? Not to say that identifying students who are vulnerable isn't good, but what's the next step, I think, is the biggest question I have as a result of this. Do your schools have uh, policies, or have you, as as staffs, talked about ways to review student social media or use it potentially to intervene um, behaviorally? Is it something that is is any way regimented or systematic? Not at, your, not at my school. No, I mean we have policies around social media use and like that. If like when we get these type of things, they can impact your discipline at school. Um, and like if they do something on social media, we're like, like, like cyberbullying and stuff oh, like yeah. that's definitely against our student code of conduct. Um, but we don't, as far as I know, have any formalized system of tracking and monitoring kids' profiles. Yeah, yeah that's how it is at my school too. We don't track or monitor. We 
we rely on self-reporting or, mm. or classmate reporting. Do you think you should? <laughs> like that's like, that's the last know. thing you want to do. I, I can't. Right? I, I don't know. I, that's that's a tough question because I not if it's not going to result in like having increased counselors and like right. wraparound services. If it's just going to always be that intervention of we at least had a conversation with you, then I feel like we're not really doing much. I think until um, we can do that, what happens next? Then it, if it's not going to result in increased supports, then I don't think so. Right. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Dr. Seuss is an icon of American children's literature who is increasingly coming under scrutiny for the potentially racist implications of some of his most beloved works. A new analysis of Dr. Seuss's work concludes his children's books, including some true classics like Horton Hears a Who, are racist and problematic. The study done by Kate Ishizuka and Ramon Stevens, entitled The Cat is Out of the Bag, looks at 50 different Dr. Seuss books and finds that just 2% of human characters portrayed by Seuss are people of color. Furthermore, all those human characters of color are portrayed in a stereotypically negative light. For instance, there is an African man in Horton Hears a Who who is shown with no shoes wearing a grass skirt. To top it all off, there is not a single female character of color anywhere in Dr. Seuss's oeuvre. That's bad, say advocates of more diverse representation in children's literature. They point out that children's views about race start to form as young as three, and children of color who do not see themselves represented in the books they read or have read to them can suffer academically and struggle with their own self-conception. So then, should Dr. Seuss continue to have the vaunted place he's held in American schoolhouses and libraries for decades. Well, to get into that topic, I talked with Dr. Philip Nell. He's a professor at Kansas State University specializing in children's literature and American history. He's written several books about Dr. Seuss, including Was the Cat in the Hat Black? The Hidden Racism of Children's Literature and the Need for Diverse Books. So I think it might be instructive to begin by talking about the work that Theodore Geisel did before he really became Dr. Seuss, before he began writing children's books under the pen name Dr. Seuss. Geisel was a cartoonist, a wartime propagandist, and some of the work he produced in that era, in the 20s through the 40s, was was by today's standards pretty appalling. Can you can you explain a little bit about, about that and some of the examples that he produced? Sure. Seuss started drawing cartoons for magazines in the 1920s, and there's lots of racial caricature in those. And uh, in the 1940s, the racial caricature really focuses on the Japanese and actually opposes caricaturing African-Americans. But what's interesting about Seuss is that in both the 40s and when he's doing his children's books, he does work that dehumanizes as well as work that opposes that dehumanization. So, for example, during the Second World War, he is creating cartoons that are critical of discrimination against African-Americans. He's creating cartoons that are 
opposing anti-Semitism, but he's also caricaturing Japanese Americans and presenting them as the enemy within, right? Or during the 50s, you know, he is working on books like uh, Horton Hears a Who, in which we learn that a person's a person no matter how small, and smallness there is a mark of difference for which the Who's are unfairly discriminated against. He also does the first version of the Sneetches in the 50s. That's published as a book in 61. And there, too, we learn that the Sneetches with stars on their bellies are no better than those with stars, those who lack stars on their bellies, right? Yeah. But that also, that same decade has books like uh, If I Ran the Zoo, which has the African island of Yurka, where you have caricatures of uh, two African men who are drawn in a way that resembles uh, the bird on the same page. They're made to look like animals. You also have a visit to the mountains of Zamba Matand with helpers who all wear their eyes at a slant. So referring to, for, to, to Japanese or Asian people. Yeah, he's caricaturing yeah. Asian people again in in the 50s. And I can also give you examples where he's critical of that too. He does a, a film that uh, actually won an Academy Award um, about uh, about Japan, in which he presents them as victims of centuries of class discrimination. Uh, that won an Academy Award in 1947, 48. It was a documentary film. So, I mean, yeah. how, could, so how are we supposed to take this? Actually, I mean, is, is it, is it just that he was a man of his era? That he was kind of this was the 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 social and and political climate of the time, and he was kind of. Uh, a complex person within that milieu? Like, how are we supposed to take that as as, someone, as people who consume his children's books now? Well, I think if you're consuming his children's books now, first of all, don't choose If I Ran the Zoo. I mean, right. if you're going to consume his children's books now, you know, you might try something like Green Eggs and Ham. You might try something like Horton Hears a Who. Um, and you might steer clear from some of the other ones. But I think the man of his time argument is weak because it assumes that all people in a given time think a given way, and they don't. Uh, and you can prove that to yourself if you look around you right now. You know, uh, Would you want people in the future to look back at now and say, well, yes, you know, America's policy towards people seeking asylum was super racist, but you know, that was some time ago, right? No, there are people now who think that our policy towards people who are seeking asylum is racist and inhumane and a crime against humanity and others who are quite happy that's going on. And the same is true 60, 70 years ago. So man of his time argument, uh, it, it has a way of kind of um, suggesting that historical progress is inevitable yeah. and it's not inevitable. What does that but leave us I, today? Then if we, if we can, can we separate Dr. Seuss's work in children's literature from his work um, early on in his career drawing and, and writing these political cartoons and wartime propaganda? I mean, I'll also add, you know, he the historical record shows he produced cartoons that contained the N-word. He, he himself performed in minstrel shows in blackface when he was a yep. younger man. Um, if, yep. I'm, if I'm reading my two-year-old son, The Cat in the Hat, which we'll get into, but you see read a lot about that book, um, or Fox and Socks, um, how should I feel? <laughs> well, I, I think... People don't understand how racism works. There are anti-racist people who do racist work. There are perfectly nice and kind people who are also racist. Um, Dr. Seuss produced a cartoon in the 1940s uh, where there's a line of people who are being inoculated against the racial prejudice bug, right? And there's a, a person at the front of the line who is sort of spraying them and uh, the, a little bug flies out of the guy's head in front and he says, you know, goodness, was that in my head? Well, now that's 
a noble sentiment, right? You don't want people to be racist, but it completely misunderstands how racism works. Racism is embedded in culture. You know, it's, it's embedded in the stories of our childhood. It's everywhere. It's not something you can sort of be inoculated against. And Seuss wasn't aware of the way in which the racist culture that he grew up in shaped the way he saw the world. And that's true of everybody, you know? Um, racism influences the way we think unconsciously. Um, so, I mean, what you could say about Seuss is that uh, he's a woke white guy who isn't as woke as he thinks he is. But I would also say that about me. You know, <laughs> I think that there's there's no way to extricate yourself from the racism in which we live. You you can't you can't just sort of say, well, not me. That didn't affect me. Bull. Of course it did. You didn't grow up on Mars. You grew up here. Um, and if you're not willing to confront the ideas that lurk in your unconscious, then we're not going to get anywhere. And, you know, Seuss did some work in that direction, but yeah, not enough. Yeah. This critical analysis of Dr. Seuss is, is coming about at a time when there is more of a concerted push to make uh, children's literature and access to children's literature more diverse. Um, that coincides with a a new study that came out last month um, that I know you're aware of, uh, published by Katie Ishizuka and Ramon Stevens called The Cat is Out of the Bag, which um, looks at 50 of Dr. Seuss's uh, children's books and and concludes that it, um, his work is is remarkably Anglo-centric. Um, I think something on the order of like 2% of human characters in his books were people of color, none of them female and none of them portrayed in, in a positive manner. Um, can, you have Dr. Yep. can you have Dr. Seuss um, as a as a part of your um, curriculum, as let's say an elementary school teacher, or, or in your school library, and still um, be pushing towards uh, having a diverse set of options for your kids. Well, I think it's much more important to have a diverse set of options for your kids than to assign Dr. Seuss books, because first of all, those kids are going to encounter Dr. Seuss books anyway. He is part of the culture, right? You're not going to uh, suddenly have a, an absence of Seuss in your life if the school decides that, that they're going to focus on diverse books. Uh, second, I would say that children need to see themselves in the literature that they consume. So if children of color are not seeing themselves in the literature they consume, that's as damaging as actually seeing racist caricature of themselves. Because not seeing yourself tells you you're not important. Your story is not important. You are not important. And that is really harmful. Um, and then for, you know, quote unquote, majority kids, they need to learn they're not the center of the universe. So that's the other reason to focus on diverse books. As far as Seuss is concerned, look, there is better Seuss, right? Um, Green Eggs and Ham is notable because its protagonist is Sam, but there's no pronoun attached to him or her. Could be male, could be female. We don't know. Um, it's not clear in the book. Um, is that a dress or a long shirt that he or she is wearing? So that's not a bad book to choose, right? Um, th th there, there are books of his, like, say, the Butter Battle book, right, which is critical of nuclear proliferation and of war more generally, or the Lorax about saving the environment, that I could imagine sharing with kids. So I, I wouldn't say you have to throw it all out. Um, I would say, you know, choose wisely and remember that what's really important here is raising a generation of kids that, let us hope, has fewer of the prejudices and the, the bad information that their elders have. Like, that's what's important. Your affection for Dr. Seuss is not important. And I say this as someone 
who has written a lot about Dr. Seuss, right? I have an affection for Dr. Seuss, but at the same time, I am also critical of Dr. Seuss because that's what it means to be a responsible adult, right? You go, ah, here's something that was really important to me and that I really loved as a child and I still have affection for it. And yet at the same time, maybe I'm not gonna give these books to my niece or at least not that one <laughs> or not that one, but I'll give her this one instead. Um, and, and that's what we do. And that's how we move forward as a culture, as a society. Um, that's how we make things better. Uh, much of your own work analyzing Dr. Seuss has focused on the cat in the hat, which I think fair to say is an all time uh, classic for a lot of people in children's literature. Um, you've written a book entitled Was the Cat in the Hat Black that explores the historical origins of the cat character. I, I I did not know a lot about this before I started kind of boning up for this interview and, and reading some of your work. And I think probably a lot of people out there who love The Cat in the Hat and have their kids watch the PBS version voiced by Martin Short probably don't know it. Uh, can you explain a little, about, a little bit about what is behind The Cat in the sure. Hat and, and what might make it problematic? Sure. The Cat in the Hat is based in part on blackface minstrelsy. And, you know, as Nicholas Salmon has shown in his own work, that's not unusual. Um, a lot of especially animated characters are are based on and, and use the imagery of blackface minstrelsy. Mickey the, Mouse the, is another one. <laughs> Mickey Mouse is another one. Bugs Bunny is another one. Scarecrow from the Wizard of Oz is another one. Um, you know, the, the white gloves of the cat and of Mickey and of Bugs come from minstrelsy. The outlandish neckwear of the cat in the hat and the crazy hat comes from blackface minstrelsy. So it's not unusual that Seuss created a character that draws on blackface minstrelsy, or even that he himself wrote and performed in blackface uh, in, in his own high school. It's not unusual at all. That, that's, that's part of American culture. But it does mean that if you're reading The Cat in the Hat, you're reading a character who bears the influence of blackface minstrelsy. Now, this is not as overt as, say, the African island of Yurka, and if I ran the zoo, or the mountains of Zampamatant with the slant-eyed helpers, and if I ran the zoo, right, it's not as overt caricature as that at all. It's much more encoded. But having said that, um, I think we could make a case that the, the, the kind of encoding, the, 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 the naturalizing of, of that kind of uh, a caricature in cartoon characters is part of what teaches us that that's acceptable, is, is part of what makes actual blackface seem not so so uh, troubling to us is that we've absorbed that imagery on a kind of deep level throughout our lives, as well as on a more overt level, right? I mean, if you watch Holiday Inn uh, at Christmas time, uh, you will see actual blackface. Uh, thank you, Bing Crosby. So, so I, I think the argument against the cat in the hat or the argument for not including the cat in the hat is he is a transmitter of that caricature in a subtle way. Yes, it's not the same as looking at actual caricature, but it is there. Um, it is there. And so that would be an argument against. I would feel much more strongly that people not use the books that have overt racism in them than I would about the cat. But you might want to think about the cat uh, as well, because there is that there is that that visual imagery of blackface that he is projecting with that sobering thought in mind and what's kind of the headline takeaway for a teacher or a parent who 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 has a, a dr seuss book around or, or sees their kid reading dr seuss or 
or, or wants well, to read a I, Dr. Seuss book with them? Well, um, critical reading is fun. You know, I, I think it gets a bad rap. People say, oh, you know, you're taking all the joy out of reading. But children think about what they read. Um, and they have questions about what they read. And you can ask questions about what they read and have a conversation with them about any book. Um, and I think one strategy is that, is to read it critically um, and to think about it critically. Um, that's not the path you have to choose, certainly. You can also choose to just simply read different books. Um, that's fine, too. And, and that, in some ways, you know, is better. Um, but I think if you have Dr. Seuss books and your child loves Dr. Seuss books, fine. Let's talk about the Dr. Seuss books. Let's, let's talk about what we might uh, enjoy, what we might value, what we might like, and what we might want to look at skeptically. Because I think children, I mean, it can be an opportunity for children to learn that they don't have to agree with everything that's put in front of them. They don't have to like every part of a book that's put in front of them. You know, they, they don't have to, simply because it's in a book, accept it. But they can have a conversation with it. They can argue with it. And that's actually a really empowering thing to learn. But as I say, also empowering is simply providing different books. You know, you could, you could provide them Jacqueline Woodson's new picture book, The Day You Begin, which is a, a, a fantastic book about difference and about stories and about uh, how telling our stories helps us connect with other people and gives us a, a sense of power. Yeah, I just, if you want the next generation to uh, improve upon the current one, then you need to reflect upon the current one, including on things that you yourself uh, feel fondly towards. Um, and it doesn't make you doesn't make you bad person for feeling fondly towards these things, right? It doesn't make you someone who um, you know goes out in a hood uh, and terrorizes people, right? It doesn't it doesn't make you that if you feel fondly for these things. But if you're not willing to think about ways in which, though you don't mean to, your choices, uh, beloved books of your culture, reinforce white supremacist ideas, uh, well, then you're not really contributing to the solution in the way that you imagine you are. So, you know, contribute to the solution. Uh, if you agree there's a problem in the status quo, then you can't just keep doing the same thing, right? You, you have to say, all right, there's a problem. What can we do? Yeah. Let's, let's take a different, let's make a different choice. Uh, well, uh, Philip Nell, a professor at Kansas State University, specializing in children's literature and American studies. He's written the book, Was the Cat in the Hat Black? The Hidden Racism of Children's Literature and the Need for Diverse Books. Uh, it's one of many books that he's read or co-edited. Uh, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. I hope the show turns out well. I look forward to hearing it. sabbaticals are common in higher education, not so much in K-12 schools, but according to Ed Week, the Rochester City School District in upstate New York is taking a page from colleges and universities and giving its teachers an opportunity to take paid one-year sabbaticals to do research or in some other way gain knowledge that they can then bring back into their classrooms. Rochester City Schools currently has five teachers on sabbatical this year focused on subjects like mindfulness, and increasing ethnic voices in literature. One teacher apparently is spending the year in Ghana to experience firsthand what um, her immigrant students back in the United States experienced trying to assimilate to a different culture. 
Um, are paid sabbaticals something other districts could consider implementing? Is it realistic in this day and age of contracting budgets and fights over school funding? And all those logistical concerns aside, given all that, would our teachers, uh, what would our teachers like to do on a sabbatical year? Wishful thinking, maybe, but we can still fantasize. Uh, so just quickly, some more details on the Rochester program. The participating teachers get 60% of their salary for the year, plus full benefits. Um, a full-time sub is hired in their stead for the year at a total cost to the district um, of more than $260,000. Again, that's according to Ed Week. Um, reading about this program, hearing about the opportunities for our teachers here, I just first of all, immediate thoughts. What do you think? <laughs> I like the idea of teachers having the opportunity to expand their expertise and like that to be supported by their districts. I think I hesitate with taking teachers out of the classroom. And I think about like my own context. We struggle enough to actually find teachers to be in the classroom. Um, and so to give them a year away from the classroom, I don't think would be most ideal, especially given the population we serve. Like we, They just can't afford to have a full-time sub um, for an entire year. Um, just because of their current academic status. And so I think that I appreciate the idea behind it. It makes me think that how can we then leverage our summertime as a more effective means? And so I think I like programs like Fun for Teachers, where you're able to design your own uh, professional development as a teacher and talk and be very explicit about how it's going to impact your kids' education and get grants to fund that. To do that. things during the summer. Right, but yeah. it's limited to the summer. So I think yeah. if, if districts are willing to pay for summer professional experiences like that, then I would be on board, uh, more on board than giving full-time sabbaticals. Now, in my district, we do offer... Um, not a sabbatical, but you can take a year leave to go back to school or to, to, no. to study, but it is an unpaid leave. Uh, I wonder how Teacher Bakari would have reacted to what, <laughs> what Administrator Bakari is saying. <laughs> I think Teacher Bakari would have said the same thing because I know the importance of having a highly effective teacher in the classroom, right. and subs just don't necessarily meet that threshold. And your, I mean, so your biggest concern with this would be... Um, the the flux and the the change that it would create for the students correct for that year yeah um or just the uncertainty yeah right. uh jamie laura your your first impressions about the idea of a paid sabbatical for k-12 teachers for you well <clears throat> my district actually has done this way 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 back like in my 11 years it's only happened with one teacher and i don't really know what she was studying or or why she got approved to do it um but Personally, I kind of agree with Bakari that I don't want to lose, I don't want to lose a year with my students, even if I won't have them again the next year. It, you have to reestablish norms when you're gone for a whole year, you know, within an incoming group. And um, I think the opportunity to go to Ghana and, and learn what it's like for, you know, to assimilate into a different uh, culture and community would be an incredible experience. But with how much time and effort I put into my classroom, it would be hard for me to justify. I would feel I'm kind of selfish, I guess. I, would, I wouldn't want to lose that time. Um, you can just say three for three. I think that um, I would love to disagree, but I actually really agree with um, everything everybody said so far. And I also think that um, investing in teachers, I think that all of these programs sound wonderful, but it would personally be really wonderful if I could get, like, some help on my grad school degree or my grad school loans or, um, you know, back in the day, way before I was a teacher, I know that um, Chicago Public Schools offered uh, tuition reimbursement for getting a master's degree. 
Um, another thing that this article or this this concept kind of brought up to me is I've had the luxury of being technically a regular teacher um, in our school district. So I'm I'm coded as a teacher. I have all the same um, benefits and responsibilities as a, as a teacher, but I'm not in the classroom um, except for, you know, this temporary status that I have. Um, but that has provided me such a new worldview world meaning school view of of really outside of the classroom but still directly servicing students so I get a much better understanding of the difficulties that middle school teachers have in comparison to first grade teachers and kindergarten teachers I get to see how the principal deals with um, strategizing and coming up with solutions that just fall at her doorstep on a daily basis and so I would love it if more schools could provide opportunities like that for um, you know, maybe if a teacher is feeling burned out, which we all get to that point, giving them an opportunity to stay in the school setting but try a different approach um, to keep learning, keep servicing students, um, keep moving the mission of the school forward, but doing it in a way that is a more bird's eye view um, for a temporary amount of time so that then when, you know, just in the last month when I've been um, back in the classroom for this temporary position, my whole perspective on what I'm doing with the students has changed because of the experience that I've had the opportunity to have. So I, I wish that there was a way for school districts to provide more of these kinds of opportunities for teachers. Uh, that is an interesting point. If I may, if I just will speak for paid sabbaticals, quoting the teachers union head in Rochester, and I should say this this paid sabbatical feature in Rochester, Rochester has been a part of the union-negotiated contract there for years, so this is not a new program. Um, he talks about paid sabbaticals this way, quoted by Ed Week. It's an opportunity for people to grow, to learn more skills, to learn more knowledge, to become reinvigorated. At the same time, the district's head of human resources says it allows the teachers a chance to, in her words, refresh their batteries. But from what I'm hearing from you, there are, the three of you, uh, there are potentially other ways to do that. Um, that don't necessarily involve taking a year off. Um, there are other ways to um, get you reinvigorated. Yeah, I mean, I actually did. I actually did do a fund for fellows teacher um, experience. I was a fellow in 2015, and it basically uh, got a $10,000 grant to go to South Africa and learn more about the apartheid and the parallels between. Uh, their educational system post-apartheid. Um, you spent the summer there. Well, I didn't spend the full summer, but um, three and a half weeks. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's, there are opportunities for that. And I think if we saw, saw more of those expanded, like if I could have spent the whole summer there learning and like engaging and and, and um, embracing that, I think would have been awesome. And, that, and I did feel reinvigorated. Even in the three and a half weeks that I was there, I came back invigorated, excited, um, with new resources and information to share with my students. So I definitely think that it's important that teachers have those opportunities. I just don't think it should take place during the school year. Yeah. Can schools afford to do this? <laughs> not currently. No. Not, yeah. not, not currently. No. We can't even get the staff we need, like Wakari was saying, yeah. so let alone send someone yeah. away. <laughs> well, I, I will say this. It's uh, it's humbling to listen to the three of you talk about um, how, I mean, just with the seriousness and the depth with which you think about your jobs and how the impact you have on kids, and and um, it's cool. I think some of your ideas are cool. So maybe you get a chance someday to, to, to take a break and recharge your battery. If not, um, 
hopefully you find it in another way. Before we go to kids these days, uh, let's tell you about some other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. A new analysis by the Education Week Research Center finds about one in four charter high schools in the U.S. have four-year graduation rates lower than 50 percent, five zero percent. That comes even as the national graduation rate in recent years has steadily climbed upwards to nearly 85 percent. Now, there are some disputes about that number, but still, you get the point. Critics say the numbers show many charter schools are not delivering on their promise to provide higher quality education to students, many in historically underserved urban districts. But charter advocates point out many charter schools exist to serve children with more academic needs. Predominantly white school districts in the United States receive a total of $23 billion, that's billion with a B, more in funding than districts that serve mostly students of color. That's according to a new report compiled by the nonprofit EdBuild, which says the disparity is due largely to persistent differences in the amount of local funding districts receive based on property tax revenues determined by deeply segregated municipal boundaries. That will not come as a surprise to any teacher who's listened to this show. That $23 billion total means mostly white districts get roughly two thousand dollars more per student on average than districts serving mostly students of color and the last public school district in the state of maine to use native american themed imagery and names for its sports teams has retired its mascot the scohegan area school district board voted this month to drop its indians mascot after years of debate and controversy members of the penobscot nation in maine called use of the term racist and demeaning Proponents maintain the name honored Maine's indigenous people. You hear that argument a lot. A new mascot for Skohegan schools has not yet been settled on. Coming up, kids these days. But first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control. And what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, for kids these days, we'll start in Chicago. Laura, what are your kids into? Um, If I said Fortnite, I feel like I would be just a broken record. (laughs) It's like it never ends. Um, And it just keeps getting more blown up and more blown up. But I will say that um, our state testing is coming up in the next couple weeks. And um, it's changed a lot since last year. And so the students are feeling anxious and, um, and a little worried about that. And um, the schedule for the next couple weeks is just going to be as we all already know, um, very challenging. And I just hope that the weather is warm enough that they can have outside recess. Uh, small favors. Yeah, small things. Uh, can I just yes. ask a follow-up question about Fortnite? So um, why why do you think it has persisted? Um, as I, someone who I watches the behavior. I have no idea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think that it's, I think because well, I, I honestly don't. I never played video games as a child. So then when I hear these kids, that's just all they talk about. Um, and, you know, like I said, I'm working mostly right now with third graders. And so they're a little younger. Um, and so that's kind of like big. It's a big topic of conversation. But I think also the fact that they can like from their houses because they don't um, most of the students that I work with don't necessarily have playovers with kids the way that 
you know, that we did back in the day. Um, so they can still interact with each other and find each other online to play. And so it feels like they're playing together, even though they're each in their own respective houses. Well, I, I think that's a good analysis. Uh, Jamie, what are your kids into? Track. Um, I had one young lady counting down since August how many days there were until track started. Um, and there's about, so only two of our grades can participate, 7th and 8th. And there's, like, I think the coach has said 175 kids going out. And that's out of, like, uh, 280. So In your entire school? In the two grades that oh, can participate, yeah. yeah, right, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's like... 60% of the kids are going out for track. So Why is it so uh, popular? They get to leave early a lot. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> thought maybe it's their love of running. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's probably a big social thing, too, in middle so school, right? So social. I mean, you get to, Super social. You get to go to the track. And... and it's really hard for the five coaches to keep track of all 175 oh, kids. So, you you know, they can sneak off and be ornery and. You could do a four-hour track meet. You got to run for thirty seconds. And right. The rest of the time, you just okay. get to play around. <laughs> yeah. uh, Bakari, what are your kids into? Spring break. This week is our last week of school before spring break, so they are being very anxious. We just did our last round of practice state assessment testing, um, and so they're very much over school right now <laughs> and want a break. So. Um, we should say that though, still. Um, even though you've had what nine? I mean, right? We, we, we have been in and out. We've had nine snow days, <laughs> yeah. uh, and we haven't had a single full week of school since 2019. <laughs> Wait, so. Since, oh my since God. 2019 started, right? Yeah. Uh, but still, they're ready for spring break. They are. <laughs> uh, well, thanks to our teachers this week: Laura Ferdinand, Jamie Myers, and Bakari Ukuu. Thanks as always to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio. Uh, where we tape in Kansas City. Remember, go to our website, nowronganswerspodcast.com. Sign up for our Friday Cheat Sheet newsletter. Until next time, remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. Mm -hmm.